Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Now, here's your host, No Shame on You's founder and president, Miriam Ament. My name is Miriam Ament, and I am the founder and president of No Shame on You. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Rhea Bachner, author of The Cape House, a memoir. We were connected recently through family and friends, and though we have only just met, after reading her memoir, I feel like I have known her my whole life. Her personality really comes through, and she manages to make you smile a lot while reading about a very difficult situation. Hi, Rhea. So great to have you on our podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you here. Let me start by asking, what is your background? Like, Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Stuff like that. Um, so I grew up in northern New Jersey, um, about 30 minutes outside of Manhattan. Um, I went to um, a Jewish day school, two different schools, one through elementary through fifth grade, and then from middle through high school, I went to a a Jewish high school in um, West Orange, New Jersey, where I graduated from. And then after I graduated high school, I got my bachelor's degree at Emerson College in Boston. And then I got a master's degree in education, special education, from Montclair State University in New Jersey. Very nice. Very nice. Um, Is there anything else you want to add to your background? Um, Well, let's see. I'm the oldest of four kids. um, And my parents um, until my mother passed away, we're happily married. Um, and I, yeah, I, <laughs> in terms of background, are you looking more for, for religious background, educational background? What, what are you, what are you thinking? Whatever you want to share, whatever you want to share. Um, okay. So as I said, I was the oldest of four kids. My parents, um, actually, were struggled with infertility for a number of years. They tried for seven years to have children and they were told that they would never have children. And then they miraculously got pregnant with me. To this day, they still don't know how it happened, but I guess I just really wanted to be here. So I, um, my parents, I got, my mom got pregnant with me and um, in the middle of the pregnancy, um, I almost died. They, they, my mother went to the hospital with bleeding and they, um, they put the stethoscope up to her belly and they weren't sure what was going on, if they had lost me or what, but it turned out that I had implanted really, really high up in the uterus. And so I like to say that I beat nature three times. One, because my parents weren't supposed to get pregnant. Two, because I survived a possible miscarriage. And three, because I was saved from addiction and an eating disorder. So clearly, I really like being alive. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I keep beating the odds. But um, my parents, after I was born, for some reason, they just kept having babies, even though they were supposed to have fertility problems. So by the time I was four and a half, um, my, I had three younger siblings. My, I have one brother who's 18 months younger than me, another brother who is 23 months younger than him and a sister who is 13 months younger than he is. So between me and my little sister, there are four and a half years. So things wow. were got pretty hectic pretty quickly for my parents. Um, but because they had those fertility problems, which they were very open about throughout my entire life to the point where now when I meet couples who are struggling with infertility, I feel like I'm 
I'm in that club. Like I, I can relate, even though, thank God I never had fertility problems. I actually am a little too fertile. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but I, I completely understand what they're going through because my parents were all, always talked about it. In fact, my parents, when they were still going through it, were one of the first couples that really spoke publicly about it. They were on a, um, on a regional news show where they went on television and talked about fertility. And this was in the days where people like infertility was not common parlance. People did not talk about it. So I come by my activism and my openness pretty honestly, um, because my mother was very out there in terms of, you know, what, what they were going through. And my father, you know, was game for it because he thought everything my mother did was brilliant. So, um, (laughs) so they, um, they actually, it's a funny story. They went, they, they lived in Pittsburgh at the time. And I actually, was born the year that the Penguins, the Pirates, and the Steelers all won their championships. So I'm clearly a harbinger <laughs> of good luck. Um, totally. That's anyway, so cool. That, yeah, I'm, I'm very cool. So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> that said, my parents went on this news show. Um, and while they were waiting in the green room, my mom just starts talking with this guy. And they're chatting. And he's really like, um, she said he was very... Um, genteel and very nice and and polite and just very well mannered and then my father is sitting there like standing behind this gentleman like quietly freaking out my mother's like what is wrong with him and so finally the man goes on to uh, be on the new show and my father's like do you know who that was and my mother was like no and he said that was Lynn Swan who is like one of the most famous football players at the time and my mom was like oh well he was really nice so so um So she had no clue, but, um, even though she did watch the Steelers, but she had no idea anyway. So, um, so yeah, my, I come by it honestly, because my mother really was a vocal personality in terms of bringing awareness to infertility, which, you know, today it's a much different world. There's IVF, there's, um, IVI, there's all different kinds of, um, infertility treatments that people can do now. And, and amazing things have happened for people. But back then it was basically like, a turkey baster, some Vaseline and like a kiss for good luck. Like that was basically it. Right. So, you know, right. now, now there's, there's been a lot of forward motion in that regard. Thank God. But at the time, you know, it took a lot of guts for my mother to really, and my parents to go public with that kind of thing. Um, right. Right. So, so, you know, I, I, I really kind of in that regard, take my cue from her. But, um, as I said, I grew up in North Jersey. I grew up in a Jewish home. Um, it was, a not a religious Jewish home, but we were a traditional home. We had Friday night dinner every week. My mother was an amazing cook. She taught challah baking classes in our house because she her recipe was so sought after. Um, and we went to synagogue every week, but we drove and we um, we had we celebrated all the holidays and like that was our life. Um, right. And my father, my father didn't grow up with much of a Jewish background, so he really wanted us to attend a day school so we could get that Jewish education that he never got. And the closest one would happen to be an Orthodox yeshiva. So that's where we went for the first few years. Um, and it was definitely an interesting experience for me for a variety of reasons. Number one, because I heard the Orthodox perspective on Judaism, which was had very, very clear rules and guidelines and boundaries, but we didn't follow them at home. So it was sort of straddling two different worlds. Um, right. The other thing was that as someone who wasn't religious going to a religious school, 
unfortunately, there were, you know, kids in the school who made a point of asking me, you know, what kind of non-kosher food I had brought. And it was, there were people who were, you know, alienating, which was unfortunate. Um, but kids are cruel everywhere. Um, right. And, you know, it was interesting for me because, as I said, we weren't Orthodox. So my mother would come to school to pick me up in jeans and cowboy boots. And, you know, the other mothers were wearing long skirts and their heads were covered. And we were just different. I just sensed inherently that we were different. And to me, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because I was very happy in my house. I had a very warm, fuzzy relationship with the Judaism we practiced in my house. I mean, my mother, my mother was a teacher before she had us. So in our house, we had a mitzvah tree on the wall and we'd come home and mitzvahs are, you know, good deeds. And so if we came home and said we had done a good deed, my mother would write it on a leaf and stick it on the wall. So we had this like beautiful art in the house with, you know, all this Jewish stuff. And I remember even like making up mitzvahs. So my mom would put like leaves on the tree because I really wanted oh, to, that's you know, funny. Have, have special, you know, stuff on the tree. And like, I just, I really, I had a good connection to the Judaism that my family brought to the table for me. And that was my religious background. Educationally, as I said, I went to this um, yeshiva until I was in fifth grade. And at that point, um, my mother and father saw it clearly wasn't working. So they moved me over to a Schechter, which is a conservative day school um, about 20 minutes away. And that's where I went to school through the rest of high school. And then when I was 14, I went to um, I went to Israel with my family and a friend of ours was killed in a terror attack. And right. I just, you know, I think I'm good. <laughs> like, right, right. You know, good things do not happen when you're Jewish. So I'm going to just peace out. Um, so that's that's sort of my religious background as a, as a child. And running parallel to that was my um, eating disorder, my food addiction. Um, from the time I was about five years old, I knew I didn't eat like other people. I just, I, I sensed it inherently. I didn't see other kids digging pizza crusts, other kids' pizza crusts out of the garbage can and eating them. I didn't see other kids um, stealing snacks from other kids' lunchboxes. I just, I had an obsession with food from the time I was really young and I couldn't understand it and I couldn't really satisfy it. I just knew that I always wanted to eat. Um, and I mean, I have three boys now and they always want to eat, but this is different. This, it was just, I was constantly thinking about food and even when I was eating, it was, when am I eating next? Um, there was a soothing element to it that I just, I just thought. And I think, right. as I said or the um, when I talked about feeling different, I think that's inherent in a lot of people with addiction. And it's not, it's for a variety of reasons. For me, I could point my finger at, oh, religiously, I felt different. But I think if you ask most people who struggle with any kind of addiction, they'll tell you that from day one, they felt different from everybody else. It's just, it's part of our illness. Right. Um, but um, anyway, so because I had this weird thing with food, I was constantly eating. And when you eat like that, um, it catches up with you. So I was obese from the time I was eight years old. And um, it was really difficult um, being an obese child. Um, you know, the, the bullying and the name calling and the isolation and all that stuff, I, I experienced it. Um, and by the time I was 10, I was on commercial diet. And the thing is, I didn't, you know, now I have the language for that. And I understand that with any kind of addiction, when you introduce certain certain substances into my system, in my case, particularly, it's white flour and sugar. 
um, right. that if you introduce those to my system, I have a reaction to them similar um, to what an alcoholic or a drug addict has to alcohol and drugs. To somebody who doesn't have this, it sounds like I'm crazy, but to somebody no, who no. does have it, to somebody who does have it, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, it's like every nerve ending wakes up and you just need to have more of it. And so I could, you know, I have nothing against commercial diet clubs. They, they work for regular people who, you know, gain a little extra weight over the holidays and they need to drop some pounds. But like for someone like me, if I buy the food for the week and there's, you know, sugar in it, I'm done. There's no, right. I can't stop and eat the allotted amount of food. That's one, one time I, I came home from the diet um, the diet club and ate, I was on my way home and ate all the desserts for the week in the car. So right. you, clearly, uh, you described that in the book, you described that in the book and I'm sure a lot of people uh, can relate to that. Yeah. I mean, clearly I was not shaping up for success. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I struggled with this for, for years and years when I was 16. Um, I really tried my best at that point until then I had tried to just handle it by dieting or starving or just, you know, denying myself. And I would always give in because any addict will tell you it's just a matter of time until you give in again. Um, And then when I was 16, I discovered bulimia. And for me, that was really a big deal because it, it felt like I could exercise some control. I could stop the numbers from going up on the scale. And I started binging and purging very quickly, numerous times a day. And I almost died. Um, at one point, I almost choked to death, but I didn't care because I just didn't want to gain any more weight. And that continued on and off until I was about 19, 20, I mean, 1920. And I found my way to um, a 12-step group for compulsive eating and food addiction. And that's how I got into recovery. But that's a whole other story. So that is my background a little bit. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for... Uh, sharing uh, a lot of your journey. Um, yeah. So uh, in along those lines, in your memoir, The Cape House, you discuss, um, at, we just talked about your experiences with uh, bulimia and food addiction. You also discuss your experiences with suicidal ideation, your recovery from food addiction, and you also briefly touch on the fact that you no longer drink alcohol. Um, it, um, could you please share with our listeners where you are in your journey today and how you got to this point? Sure. So as I said, I found my way to um, the 12-step program um, called Overeaters Anonymous. Um, It's like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous, except it's for people who have a compulsive relationship with food. And so that doesn't necessarily mean just obese people or compulsive overeaters. Um, It could also be bulimics, anorexic. My sponsor is an anorexic, so and I'm a compulsive eater, and somehow we're speaking the same language. So it's anyone who has a dysfunctional relationship with food. But... um, I got into the the program and um, these the first meeting I ever went to, I heard someone say, hi, my name is whatever, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I had never heard those words before. Um, and I realized that, you know, there was a name for what I had, which was a very big deal because if there was a name, then I wasn't the only one who had it. And this was a real problem. This wasn't something I just made up in my head. Um, and so the pe- these people in the rooms explained to me about the the alcoholic response. In in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about how we respond to our substance like an allergy, um, and that's really what it is. I have a physical reaction to these foods that causes me to want to have more and more of it. And 
Um, as I said, people who don't have this reaction, they're like, what, just don't have the cake. And they don't realize that if you look at the multiple choice question of when should I have the cake, don't have the cake is not one of the answers. Um, it's just it's just how it works in, in with my body. And I didn't know that I couldn't stop. And so when I started going to these meetings and, and listening to what these people had to say, I had to start um, it took me a while, but I was willing to follow their suggestions, which in their case was to um, become something called abstinent, which um, is, is similar to sober um, or, or um, clean in the uh, NA and, and AA rooms, um, where I abstain from my trigger foods. And for me personally, I have a food plan that I stick to and, and working the 12 steps um, because all addictions um, are the same disease. They just manifest differently. And so for me, working the 12 steps was really the key for that. Um, and I've lost over a hundred pounds, um, and oh, that's amazing. Off for over a decade. Um, wow. um, so most people who meet me now, they would have no idea that I used to weigh 250 pounds, but I did. Right. Um, and in terms of the alcohol, so it's interesting. I stopped drinking alcohol for a few reasons. Number one, because I was, and, and my experience has proven this to be true, that with me, alcohol um, dims my, my survival instinct, as it were. It dims my, my thinking. And so my capacity um, for making like sound, judge, sound judgment is, hindered when I drink. And if that's the case, then my, my, uh, the possibility that I could go back to eating compulsively is heightened when I drink. Also for me, alcohol is sugar, it's sugar in a cup. And so right. when, and sugar for me is, is an addictive substance. And so when I drink, it has that same response. That's why, even though I wasn't the kind of person who was at the bar every night, when I did drink, I would drink, I would binge drink. Um, right. I would, you know, I'd go into a bar and drink nine glasses of wine in 20 minutes, or I'd have, you know, 10 wine coolers in an hour and get really, really sick because I still, I didn't, even though food was my drug of choice, I didn't drink normally either because, you know, I, <laughs> I, I like to do things, you know, I go out with style. So, um, so, um, so, you know, that's, that has to do with the, with the drinking. However, I also um, consider myself a member of AA because Number one, because I don't drink, excuse me. <coughs> and number two, because the people in, there are a number of people in AA who have shown me about, have taught me about working the steps and, and how to live in recovery. So I consider myself part of that fellowship as well. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your journey and, and your and your recovery. Uh, it's definitely inspiring to hear and I'm sure will inspire a lot of our listeners. So uh, switching gears to to the sort of focus of your memoir, uh, your memoir, as you know, <laughs> focuses on your mother receiving a prognosis of terminal cancer uh, in the last six weeks of her life and the impact on your family during this extraordinarily difficult time. As I was reading the book, there were many occasions to laugh, yet the grief was definitely palpable. For listeners dealing with grief, can you can you give some advice about what it, what you would tell someone who's going through a similar situation with a family member or a friend? Mm. Uh, so the one thing I know for sure is that anything else is not important. Nothing else but the thing you're going through is important. Um, so old 
rivalries, petty annoyances, any old family drama, any old resentment against yourself or the person who's, you know, dying or anyone else involved, forget it, leave it at the door because you don't want it interfering with what is a very special time. And I know the word special may strike people as odd, but going through those six weeks um, with my mother dying was very transformative. And on many levels, I'm grateful that I was able to be, um, you know, clean and present for it because it taught me a lot. And one of the things that the nurses that we worked with praised my family for was how we didn't get caught up in, in dynamics. We didn't get caught up in history or drama. We just worked together to try to make this as simple and easy and painless as possible for not just for my mother, but for each other. Um, it's really a call for service um, to really show up for other people. And part of being of service is also self-care. So any little ways that a person can take care of themselves, whether it's, you know, going for a run at five in the morning or getting to a yoga class or getting a massage or, you know, calling a friend or just going running out for a cup of coffee just to be out of that space for a little while, do it. Um, but the one thing I will say is don't try to escape it. It's very painful and very hard. And it's, it's one of the hardest things a person can go through, but just be present for it. You know, don't check out. It's, it's, it can really, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but it's really a huge gift. Um, so many people I've heard of who, you know, did not show up for that feel immense regret. And the people who did will all tell you that it's really a transformative experience. Um, and the other thing about grief is that it becomes something you learn to live with, um, just like, uh, you know, a football injury or something like that. It just, it doesn't end ever. Um, it just okay. takes different forms, different shapes. Sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's farther. You know, for me, um, my sister had a baby about a year ago. And when she called oh. me, she told me, I feel, yeah, I feel like I, I know, I feel like I know her. Yeah. Yeah. Zena. She married the guy in the book. Um, oh, good. So they, had, <laughs> yeah, they had a baby together. So she called me a year ago to tell me that my nephew was born and I immediately burst into tears, like sad tears. Because oh. even though I was, of course, so happy that, that he was born, all I could think of was like, I can't believe she's not here for this right. grandson. Um, right. So it it was, you know, those little, it just it just is something you live with forever, but it doesn't kill you. It doesn't. It's just, it's, it's a club nobody wants to join, but in some ways it's given me more empathy and compassion and a deeper capacity for living than I would have ever had otherwise. So like it's, it, there's nothing fun about it. It totally sucks, but just show up. Well, thank you. Um, I know I appreciate you taking your experiences and, and sharing them and, and impacting so many people. Um, so that's, and I'm happy to hear that your sister had a baby. <laughs> that's exciting. She did have a baby. <laughs> um, so tell us, I know you're up to a lot. Tell us what you have coming up in 2018. Oh, what am I up to? So I'm working on the next book, which is a novel. Oh, um, cool. Yep. Yeah, so I'm working on a novel. Um, I'm writing my blog, um, you know, at least weekly. I have com, so I'm constantly blogging. I'm traveling um, around the country um, with a book book tour. Um, so I was just recently in Florida. I'm going up to North Jersey again next week. I'm going to 
um, Providence and, and New Haven in March. So I have a, I'm running around a little bit um, and just raising my family, doing my thing. I have three, three sons and two stepdaughters who are in and out. So I'm, you know, a pretty busy mom and I homeschool right. one of my kids for part of the day. So, you know, I'm busy with that and it's, you know, just juggling life. Right. Right. Amazing. Well, we'll look forward to the next book. And we also, we'd, we'd love to have you in Chicago. I know you and I have talked about it, so hopefully we can make that I'd happen too to next year. Yeah, that would be, be great. great. So where, so you mentioned your, your website, RiaBachner.com. Can you, can you spell that out for people and tell us anywhere else that people can uh, learn more about you or find your books, et cetera? Sure. So it's R-E-A-B-O-C-H-N-E-R.com. Um, that's my blog. You can find information about me, about what I'm up to, um, about the book. Um, you can also find my book, which is called The Cape House, um, on Amazon. Great. That's where I got it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, we're so excited to have you here. It's such an honor. And thank you for sharing so much of your journey and really having an impact on countless people who feel not alone and like they, there's someone out there who gets it. So I can't thank you enough and I'm so glad we were put in touch and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.